Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of January 27th, 2020. On the show today, we answer your burning questions. Is Angela Lansbury a liar? Is there a hidden room at Disney's Riviera Resort? Is there German music beyond Rock Me Amadeus and 99 Luftballoons? And in our main segment, Jim talks about the history of Epcot's Communicore buildings now that they're being torn down. Let's get started by bringing in the man who wonders how 1,000 islands managed to come together and agree on a single salad dressing. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Wow, you get a salad dressing joke. <laughs> the only other one I know is that potatoes had to avert their eyes because of the Russian dressing. That's all I got. <laughs> it's, it's a very small genre of jokes. It is, isn't it? it is. <laughs> all right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.bandcamp. Com. Thanks to new subscribers, Kevin M., Jeepin Illini, and Miners Doll, and longtime subscribers, Federalist97, Andrew J., and Darth Larson. True story, Jim Darth Larson pitched a perfect game in the 1956 World Series. Jim, did you know that these are the folks who run the chainsaws you hear while on Collier River Rapids? Except they're not cutting down trees. They're making snow cones that are served in Asia. That's environmentalism, Jim. True story. Wow. Okay, I thought it was that Canadian show, those guys. I always felt so bad when they shut that down out in front of the the Canada Pavilion. (laughs) We're going to talk about Epcot Entertainment here in a bit, Jim. But first, Mm -hmm. Jim, the big news today, I'm sure you've already heard it, Hollywood Studios' Fast Past Tears are a-changing. As of today, Slinky Dog Dash and Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run are Tier 1. Everything else is Tier 2, and Smuggler's Run gets Fast Passes starting February 19th. Jim, what's the motivation for this? It's an either-or proposition. You can get a Tier 1 Fast Pass for Millennium Falcon, Slinky Dog Dash. And it's just, right. you have to decide which fandom you know means the most to you. Otherwise, it's at least a 90-minute line, a two-hour long line. 75 minutes or so for Millennium Falcon, 70 to 90. I mean, it's, it's settled down. And then Slinky, yeah, I mean, I was there Monday. Martin Luther King Day, so a couple days ago, and it was a 125-minute wait. It was, I mean, it was insane. So, Jim, here, though, here's an interesting question, and we get this a lot from listeners. What's the strategy, then, for doing Rise of the Resistance, the Tier 1 and the Tier 2 Fast Passes? And, and I think here's what it is. You try and get a Tier 1 Fast Pass for Slinky Dog and Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run. So you're going to get probably get one of those. And then you get whatever tier twos you can, right? So Tower of Terror, Rock and Roller Coaster, mm-hmm. Star Tours, whatever. Okay. Whichever tier one you don't get, let's say it's Slinky Dog, mm-hmm. right? Then the thing to do is to show up at the studios an hour before park opening. As soon as the park opens, walk over to get in line for your favorite ride for when the park opens. So let's say the gates open at 630 and the park opens at 7. At 630, walk as far as you can towards Slinky Dog, right? And then as soon as the park opens, as you're walking towards the Slinky Dog line, you should be trying to get a boarding group for Rise of the Resistance. Because at that point, you'll be at the front of the line for Slinky Dog. You'll hopefully get a a boarding group for Rise of the Resistance. And you'll already have a fast pass for Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run. You'll be able to cover all the three best attractions in the park and still already have fast passes for the other two two attractions. That seems to be the the thing to do, right? Whichever one you can't get, Mm -hmm. go stand in line for that first thing in the morning. Got it. Heard something interesting coming out of uh, Anaheim in regard was to- it, f- Was it cries for help because the ride's <laughs> only processing 700 people an hour? Well- <laughs> The tears of Imagineers hitting the sidewalk? Was that what you heard, Jim? Was that it? It's more about when your boarding group is. and it, The boarding it, groups are, are, are being taken in like the first minute 
that they're available, right? But if you make the mistake of standing with the mob on Main Street, you are competing for uh, access to the Wi-Fi in that area. To the cell phone, to the towers, right? To the Wi-Fi in the cell phone towers, yeah. Okay, if you are smart enough to walk deep into the park, friends were talking about how they got over to the space between the castle and the Matterhorn, Mm -hmm. And they had friends who were down in the plaza on Main Street, and they all hammered on the button at the same time. The folks who were deeper into the park got earlier boarding groups. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's because the, the network latency is lower. Mm -hmm. Not for nothing, but we had a uh, somebody who works on Disney's network mm -hmm. reach out and explain, like, how to do all of this. Okay. And unfortunately, it's one of those things that we can't, we can't give out to the public because then everyone would do it and it wouldn't work for anyone, but... All right. And apparently Disney, Disney knows this, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, they're, so I wouldn't be surprised if you started to see uh, more encourage, encouragement to be dispersed throughout the park mm -hmm. to get the boarding group. Yeah, like they don't, to your point, they don't want everyone standing on Main Street. Okay. Well, uh, I'm sorry if we've, we've just instituted the, the Disney equivalent of running of the bulls. You know, where it's like, you know. <laughs> I have a running of the bulls joke later on too, Jim. Oh. <laughs> this is great. Okay. We're in sync today, man. We're in sync. Okay. The show is on. Mm -hmm. Also, Jim, uh, through March, all of this studio's uh, Extra Magic Hour mornings have been replaced with Extra Magic Hour evenings. Jim, I'm assuming, tell me if I'm wrong here, this is so they can have more time to work on Rise of the Resistance. Oh, yeah. It did not have a good week, did no, it? No, it, it <laughs> didn't. I don't, it, it was, was it, rough. Was it Monday that they had the seven-hour delay? Or I go, which day was it that they... I mean, they it sleeps late every once in a while. Uh, What's well. the... <laughs> hey, let me see. Hold on. What day was it? We actually we tracked this. It was, yeah, the 21st mm -hmm. where the, uh, the ride didn't open until 2 p.m. In fact, it wasn't even better on the 22nd. And the 22nd, it still didn't open until 9 a.m. In fact, even today, the 23rd, the day they were recording it, didn't open until 8. Oof. So, okay. Yeah, the last week. I mean, the last week it's it was uh, it opened uh, after nine on the sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth, and nineteenth, and the twentieth. It was fine, but yeah, so about half of the last week it did not open on time. Yeah, the the twenty first was just a, a brutal, brutal day. Which it, tells me one of two things: they're either working on it, mm -hmm. or and I hope that's what it is. I hope that they they just decided that they need some downtime and they had to work on it and they had to get it done to make it more stable. I hope that's what it is. The other possibility, which I'm almost reluctant to say is it's an unpredictable problem that they don't know how to solve. And that would be bad. Scenario number three is, is they're sharing a repair guy with Hagrid. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm sorry, he's not available. He'll be there Wednesday. I've heard that uh, Disneyland is now, uh, so we're counting the number of people who are going in and out of these rides every day. Mm -hmm. uh, Disneyland started off at 700 people an hour, which I mean, the theoretical capacity of this ride is supposed to be around 2,100 in practice mm -hmm. if you know, their goal is to hit 1,700. But Disney, Disney World is at 1,400 tops. Disneyland opened at 700. So they opened up at l half of the lower side of their capacity, but they're up to 1,000 now. So they're getting wow. there. But we're, we're a long way from running at capacity. And that means we're a long way from running with FastPass too. Okay. So their their goal is to get to 1,700. That's They're considering that now capacity, even though it's supposed to be 2,100. Fine, I understand. Mm -hmm. We'll see. More luck to them. And they've got, uh, the good thing is, is they're past Martin Luther King Day weekend right now. They've got a little bit of a breather until President's Day and Mardi Gras. But then after that, once that starts, I mean, it's going to be 100% capacity through April. Yeah. 
almost every day. All right. So we'll see. Yeah. There's another reason they don't want adults to carry lightsabers around inside of Batuu because they're going to start <laughs> stabbing people. So that's, that's, that's the real reason for the no weapons policy right there, Jim. <laughs> Jim, I was over at uh, Epcot for the beginning of the Festival of the Arts. Mm-hmm. It's the fourth running of this in 2020. And of course, as we all know, Festival of the Arts means culinary arts in Epcot. So I was eating my way around World Showcase and I happened to stop off at the German pavilion because they've got uh, something called Cuisine Classique. It's, it's not technically German food. It's, I guess, basically the supposedly the best of Europe inspired by a, the 18th and 19th century. Mm-hmm. So I expected pigeon. <laughs> not, not, what I, not what I got. Okay. I got, it ended up with some really tasty um, beef short ribs, fantastic fish dish, and then the best caramel custard tart thing that I've ever had in my entire life to the point where four of us fought with plastic sporks <laughs> to eat the last bit of it. All delicious. But as I was eating it, Jim, mm-hmm. a band came out, and the band is named Liebendig. They're German. And they came out and did a set. And I think this is the best new band in Epcot. It's the must-see thing for all of World Showcase for Epcot Festival of the Arts. It's a rock band, four guys, guitar, bass, drums, lead singer. I joked because I was with a bunch of friends when they came out. I'm like, oh, it's a, it's a German band. Are they going to open with Rock Me Amadeus or with 99 Luftballoons? I don't, can't wait to hear this, right? Because that, that's who I am as a person, mm-hmm. right? Not, not very good on the inside. But they came out. They played their own music. Apparently, they've, they've won some contests in Germany. They're uh, an up-and-coming young band. They sound great. The music's very high energy. Lots of people were dancing. I have no idea what the lyrics mean. Mm-hmm. Again, they sound fantastic. If you guys get a chance, if you're listening, go grab something to eat in uh, around Germany. So either the Africa outpost, Italy or Germany, and then go catch one of their sets. I believe it's 15 minutes after the hour. So like 1.15, 2.15, 3.15 and so on. Seven sets a day, a day Jim, Oof. starting around noon. Yeah, I know. Apparently there are no child labor laws in Germany either. Well, to be but, fair, though, the story about the Beatles, uh, you know, to the effect of... Yeah, they're the German pubs, and this is a German pub band. Yeah, I mean, Liebendick. And they had to play so many sets in Germany. What is it? You have to play 10,000 hours before you become really, really good. So Yeah, the, yeah that's what Malcolm Gladwell says. Yeah, 10,000 hours of practice. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah they're getting their 10,000 hours in. Yeah, well, with seven sets you know, a day. You know. Next Tuesday, they'll be the Beatles. That's great. <laughs> by, by this rate, they'll be John and Ringo in no time. Damn. All right. So anyway, Liebendig is their name. I think that translates to either alive or lively in English. But yeah, fantastic band. Go see them when you're uh, when you're in uh, Epcot for Festival of the Arts. Fantastic, fantastic group. I wish them all the success in the world. The other thing I did after I left Epcot was take the Skyliner over to the Riviera. And here's where things get interesting. You know, Jim, we get email from listeners all the time, mm-hmm. right? And our listeners, and I love all of you, as I say this, I love all of you in your own way. Some of our listeners are more detail-oriented than, say, the average person who listens to podcasts. In one case, uh, this is where it got interesting. So a listener wrote to me and said, hey, I've looked at uh, on touring plans um, where you have the maps showing every room on every floor of Disney's Riviera Resort. It's the thing we have called the, the hotel room finder. It allows you to see the view you get from every hotel room in Walt Disney World. So he wrote to me and said, hey, I was, I was looking at all of these rooms on all the floors, and I was comparing it to the paperwork that Disney has to file with the county because Riviera is a DVC resort and therefore it's timeshare, right? So Disney has to, has to file the floor plans 
with the county showing exactly where each room is going to be on the floor plans. And the listener wrote in and said, there's a discrepancy. I've added up all of the rooms. And as far as I can tell, there's a difference in one studio room between what you have on your website and what Disney's filed with the county. And then he said, it's either on one of these two floors. And he named two specific rooms. Mm -hmm. He said, either room 8347 doesn't exist or room 8281 doesn't exist. And I said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll go look this up because it was, it was interesting to me. Uh, and as a side note, we got our room information from Disney. So my first, my first, first response back to the listener was, you know, this is probably a case of the left hand of Disney not talking to the right hand of Disney, right? So there's a discrepancy here. Something's off. So I go over, and the first thing I find out is there is no room 8281, right? doesn't exist at all, even though I think it's on the Disney filing. Uh, and there definitely is a room 8347, even though it's not shown on Disney's paperwork. So that's it. I took a picture of the room, sent it off to our listener. He emailed me back within a minute and said, okay, what kind of a room is 8347 should be a studio based on the number of points that Disney's filed. So I, I walk downstairs to the lobby mm-hmm. and I say, hey, you know, uh, I'm thinking about purchasing points at, uh, at Riviera. Can you tell me what kind of a room is 8347? And so she pulls out her computer and she says, we don't have a room 8347. <laughs> this is where it got strange, right? <laughs> I'm like, I'm pretty sure you do because I just saw it. Mm-hmm. So she says, okay, let's go look. So just met this cast member. Mm-hmm. We get in the elevator. We go up to room to the third floor, mm-hmm. 8347. We walk all the way down the hall. It's the last room on the left. Sure enough, it's a room. We peek inside and it's a standard view deluxe studio. So we all agree the room exists, right? This is not some sort of weird twilight sort of thing. So we walked back downstairs. She looks at the computer again. She's like, nope, doesn't exist in our inventory, but let me check something. She goes in the back and she says, okay, it definitely exists and is definitely a standard uh, deluxe studio. So that tells me, Jim, that uh, a couple of things. One, I thought there were two systems in Disney that didn't agree, but apparently there are three systems <laughs> <laughs> that Disney uses for room inventory that don't exist. So, uh, so yeah, room 8347, I don't know how you get this room though. If it's not on their inventory, like how do you, how are people assigned to it? Because there's no one in it when I was there. I mean, if you remember how you talked about the studio tower units where if you weren't depressed going in, you were definitely depressed when you left. Yeah. You know, yeah. if ever there's a room that should have been hidden, it's those, not this one. It's one of those. Yeah, not this one. So yeah, 8347, if you ever stayed in Riviera, it's the hidden room. Okay. Plus you want to be in the in the event of nuclear disaster, apparently, because no one knows it exists. Oh, all right. I'm, I'm just... <laughs> she came down. She's like, oh, we don't have a room 8347. Like, oh, <laughs> this is going to be a story. <laughs> okay. Just going to pass along a note to Stephen King and he can do the rest. So I think hidden room in a Disney hotel, there's got to be a, there's got to be a plot thing around right there. Gotta be, gotta be. So while I was in, I've been in, I've been in, in the parks every day this week. Um, I've also been getting Jim a ton of surveys from Disney literally every day mm-hmm. that I've been in the park. I wake up the next morning and I get a, I have a survey in the mail from Disney. And that brings us to uh, a couple of, survey uh, uh, and listener questions that we got. Here's one from our pal, Jason, and it's related to the new FastPass tiers at the studios. And he asks you, Jim, Jim, what's the long-term plan for FastPass Plus for Disney's e-ticket attractions? So Disney uh, Universal has the approach of delaying Express Pass for its headliner attractions. And Disney traditionally hasn't used this for FastPass prior to Galaxy's Edge. Does this mean that there's going to be a change in FastPass strategy for Disney? And will it extend to new attractions like Ratatouille, Cosmic Rewind, and and so on? Disney right now is still dealing with the earthquake related to 
Rise of the Resistance. And I don't know if you've been following that at all, Len, with the number of folks who will go to Disneyland for the day who are annual pass holders. Oh, I know what you're going to say here. Go ahead. Yeah. They arrive, they get in the park, they find they can't get a boarding group, and they go home. And they go home. Exactly. So I happen to mention this. I think we may have said this on a previous podcast, but Mm -hmm. a number of people who work on Wall Street, Mm -hmm. occasionally ask us questions. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I I pointed out to a few of our Wall Street friends a few days ago was when Disney releases its attendance numbers for Disneyland, you have to ask them to subtract Mm -hmm. those people who came into the park, tried to get a boarding group, didn't, and then left. Because from what I understand, it's thousands of people, Jim. Yes, yes. And I don't know if you saw on the opening day of Rise of the Resistance, it was a lot of criticism to the effect of only Starbucks was open, that they missed this amazing opportunity to sell Rise of the Resistance merch because the Emporium wasn't closed or likewise to feed these people. And Disneyland is now scrambling to sort of put together a plan for the, the fact that we have all these people artificially bottled up. And what do you do when a good chunk of your day's attendance just walks back to their car and drives off? And goes home. Yeah. So let me just point out, Jim, that I'm continually surprised mm-hmm. that it comes as a surprise to Disney that they're opening new rides themselves. Like, did no one think that we're going to open the park at 7 a.m.? Maybe people would want coffee and breakfast. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that happens time after time after time. Yeah. From their side of the fence, there is, in fact, a learning curve. And I guess there were discussions, what do we do if this is the pattern? And that's where they are right now. What do you do, for example, with the two giant parking structures that you have when suddenly you have thousands of people leave. And that means you have spots in the first, second, and third floor of your garage. But you know you can't do your speed loading because you would then basically cut people loose to drive around and find these open spots. Right. What's strange is there have been these operational ripples in all sorts of different directions that, that nobody evidently ever anticipated. Yeah, there's never a, you know, if this thing happens, then here are, here are going to be the long-term ramifications. Or if we do X, how will people respond? Mm-hmm. It's very strange. Yeah. Yeah, but the, uh, the thing about, about them leaving Disneyland, I've our guy, Guy, who's in Disneyland every day, mm-hmm. said that after the first couple of days, like the number of people who can't get a boarding group and immediately leave mm-hmm. is in the many hundreds, if not thousands. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's a sight to see that they're just in and they leave. So that's, that number has to be backed out of, uh, of Disney attendance. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that somebody asks that specific question on the next earnings call. Well, like, of, of this attendance in Disneyland, how many people are you counting who immediately left right afterwards? As I understand it, they do have folks with clickers standing there doing some survey work now because this is something they've just become aware of. And it's just sort of like, okay, you know, how bad is this? So it'll be great if somebody can actually ask that question at the earnings call because they are definitely processing that info now. Yeah, cool. Um, Also, Jim, another survey that we got from our our friend Rhett got Mm -hmm. was around Disney transportation. And Rhett says, the survey asked me to rank my transportation uh, preferences. So for example, bus, boat, monorail, and Skyliner with a bunch of follow-up questions about the Skyliner. And then the questions were further broken down by route. So Epcot to Caribbean Beach, Caribbean Beach to the studios, and so on. They asked him to use a Likert scale. So that's, you know, like words rather than numbers Mm -hmm. for items about ease of getting on and off the gondolas, asking about the in-ride audio experience, asking how many times they stopped, how long they stopped, 
and what he felt when they stopped. I was like, I, I, I felt like we were being pushed around by the wind. So if any of our other listeners have got that survey, let me know and send it in, please. This is a good sign. This is Disney yeah, it is. trying to get an impression of how do people pe- feel about the Skyliner because they really, really do want to expand this. That as long as they get you know, strong, enthusiastic responses, someday you will be able to get from Kidani Village all the way over to the, you know, to the shopping village. I mean, wouldn't no, that be I can't cool? wait, yeah. Yeah, I can't wait. Jim, also we got a listener question from Jeremy who writes, uh, I'd love to hear if you guys have uh, heard if Disney plans to find a way to pull Galaxy's Edge away from the very specific sequel trilogy era it was planted in. Because at some point they have to realize it's limiting in some important ways. And so, for example, Jeremy writes, imagine a child asking, Mom, Dad, can I go meet Darth Vader or Luke Skywalker or the Mandalorian when we go to Star Wars land? And the parents would say, hush, baby, that's a different story era. (laughs) Hush, child. You don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) It's interesting you say baby because baby Yoda really changed the equation. The Mandalorian is such a huge hit at this earnings call. It's going to be fascinating to hear the numbers for Disney Plus that were driven by Mandalorian becoming this pop culture phenomena. But I think we talked previously about how there have been some very serious discussions of creating sort of a Star-Lord and Baby Groot meet and greet experience only with the Mandalorian and the child. But it can't be it can't be in Galaxy's Edge because the timeline doesn't work. This is what the argument is is now <laughs> Dis- starting. Disney themselves are going to say Canon Schmanon. Is that what you're saying? Very very early on, when they were discussing Galaxy's Edge, this has to be a loose construct because Star Wars is an ongoing franchise. We are going right. to introduce new characters. This is one of the reasons why we chose this remote outpost at the edge of space, that people would come through, especially on the heels of, frankly, the somewhat poor response to, uh, you know, how the story in uh, in The the Rise of Skywalker came to a close. Speaking of that, have you seen the alternate script that was leaked? Yes, yes. Were you not like, this is a better script than what we got? (laughs) And that tells you a lot about what's going on inside of Lucasfilm, you know, to the effect of somebody actively let that get out of the building because there had been so much discussion of, wow, that's where you got after all this time. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, from Disney's side of the fence, they have a billion-dollar earning film. Their seventh this year or seventh seventh in 2019, yeah. So yeah. it's hard to quibble unless, of course, you line that up against what The Force Awakens or The Last Jedi earned. So I think people need to be ready for other characters from other eras start to come in here. But how are they going to explain it? Because the timeline is so specific. To be honest, Disney's going to the office where those complaints are would be going into about yeah. Star Wars canon. They're going to insulate the walls with bundles of money. So, you know, oh. it, it <laughs> would be that much harder to hear the complaints over the sound of cash pouring in. All right. But at this point, if there were, were a Mandalorian meet and greet with the child in Batu right now, the line would be longer to experience that than it would be for Rise of the Resistance. Oh, sure. It'd be huge. Yeah. All right. So, Jim, speaking of uh, of questions about canon, I remember on last week's show, we talked about the new Beauty and the Beast sing-along mm-hmm. at France, right? Among the criticisms I had of it was that 
it didn't appear to be canon mm -hmm. because it says that it, the, the Beauty and the Beast sing-along attempts to uh, say that LeFou, uh, guest on Sidekick, was actually the one working behind the scenes to bring Belle and the Beast together. And, and so I pointed out a couple of problems with it just from a plot perspective uh, and the fact that you know it kind of didn't make sense. Well, one of our readers, one of our listeners, sorry, apparently asked media relations <laughs> whether the sing-along is canon. And, and let me just say, I love all of you for doing that. Thank you very much for reaching out to Disney to ask whether the this new thing in, in Epcot is, a, uh, is part of the canon. So media relations responded with, and I'm quoting here, it's the story as LeFou remembers it. It isn't necessarily what happened. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if, Jim, if it's possible for media relations to make an announcement that's, or to say something that makes it worse, this is it. So let me just, let me just point this, uh, the problems with this. For one thing, Mrs. Potts tells the story, not LeFou. So if it's the story as LeFou remembers it, Mrs. Potts is narrating it. So the question is, is how did LeFou, how did, how did Mrs. Potts learn the story? Right? Did she learn it because it's true or did she learn it because that's what LeFou said? All right. So she also says in the story, and I had to go back and listen to this entire movie again, mm -hmm. she doesn't say it's LeFou's version of events. In fact, she specifically says, quote, this is the true story of what really happened. And then she goes further to say in the sing-along, he's the surprise hero of the story. So Mrs. Potts is then, and, and by, by extension, Angela Lansbury, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> Let's drag her in, is saying, is saying these things are true, right? So if media relations says it's not necessarily what happened, and let's, let's take it on face value that it's true, and Mrs. Potts says it is, Jim, then the only possible conclusion we can say is that Mrs. Potts is an unreliable narrator, and we can't believe anything she says. In other words, Jim, Mrs. Potts is Kaiser Sose. <laughs> <laughs> All these things can't be true, Jim. I, All of them can't be true. Okay. <laughs> I, I just want to point out that you're talking about Dame Angela Lansbury, all right? D okay. Dame. So if, yeah. if we want to press this issue, it's, we're in international incident country. Tread very softly. Exactly right. Yeah, Eglantine Price, this woman knows witchcraft, okay? You, you could, could end up as a bunny. <laughs> so let's just move on. Like – First of all, uh, credit to media relations for even attempting to answer the question. But I, dear God, yeah. <laughs> and this this is the thing, right? So I, I, and I agree with you. Going back to the the thing about Star Wars, mm -hmm. Disney doesn't care about canon. Mm -hmm. Disney does not care about the stories that they tell making sense in an overall larger context. They they just don't care. And this is an example of it. But it drives me up the wall. Did you ever watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Yes, yes. My big complaint with Buffy the Vampire Slayer after about season four mm -hmm. was that if death isn't permanent, what are the consequences in the show? Like after Buffy, after all the characters died and came back to life again, mm -hmm. like there's no real consequence to any of it, right? Then the, the show had to make up like different versions of death, some of which were permanent and some of which were And it, it all became too confusing. And in the end, it, it sort of, it, it sapped the story of any real emotional investment, right? Because if the people who are writing the story can arbitrarily say it at any point, the things that have happened in the past don't matter or they were wrong, right? Then what, what is it that you're asking us to believe now? And why do I care, right? If at the end of all of this, it's like that never happened, mm -hmm. regardless of whether it's, it's Mrs. Potts or Star Wars or Buffy the Vampire Slayer, if, if they can change it on a dime and say, you know what, those, those characters that you love, those stories that you're so emotionally invested in, it didn't happen that way. Then what's the point of any of it? it drives me up the wall. <coughs> Emperor Palpatine. 
<laughs> oh, God. That's the but that's a, a topic for another show. A whole other show. Whole other show. Somehow, Palpatine is still alive. That's the entire. That's the entire exposition. Who knew that you we got. fall down that a shaft all- for miles and miles, <laughs> but there's a mattress at the bottom. I mean, how? How? <laughs> That's it. The entire the entire expository dialogue about how this one this one super super art arcing narrative about Palpatine comes into existence is a single sentence <sighs> by a, a secondary character in the movie. But somehow Palpatine's still alive. Oh God. Speaking of, of things that are somewhat mystifying, you and I talked about the new film for Canada, the Canada Far and Wide. Canada Far and Wide, right, yeah. Out ahead of this week's show, Len asked me to prep some material about Communicore. And I, as I was doing that, I came across this factoid about the Canada Pavilion, Len, that I have to run by you because it, it's one of these things where it's like, I don't know if this is true, but it's it's coming from an actual official Disney source. And if oh, it right. is true, you have to look at it, at the uh, Canada 360 uh, Circle Vision thing entirely differently. This info comes from the Walt Disney World Pictorial Souvenir for Epcot Center. It's a 76-page booklet published in 1981. So it's, it's a year out from the opening of Walt Disney World's Second Gate. It's filled with concept art because, again, Epcot is under construction. There's no way to get decent pictures of the park at this point. You turn to page 56 of this thing, and it has a description of the O Canada movie. So, again, the, the miracle of Disney Circle Vision, breathtaking film tour, blah, 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 Canadian geese flying through sky, all the stuff we know from the show. But this is okay. what caught my eye, Lynn. With the climax of your whirlwind Circle Vision 360 tour, your adventure becomes a walking journey through Canada's exciting backcountry. Beyond a charming Quebec thoroughfare, you'll wind down a path blasted through a, a steep mountainside. You'll pass a riverbank, footpaths, bridges, tall pine trees, rushing waterfalls, and an abandoned mine. And then through holes that are cut in a tunnel, you can then view Salmon Island where lumberjacks compete in a riotous logging. Am am I nuts, Len? Is this saying that you were supposed to exit the theater and then begin, you know, moving through that pathway? I thought that was the front of the ride, not the back of the, the, the attraction. That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, now, we were just talking last week that Disney operates off of the stat or the the, the, the belief that 70 to 95% of all guests are right-handed. When the Imagineers were designing uh, World Showcase, they assumed that with so many people being right-handed, the first pavilion they were probably going to go to was the Canada Pavilion. And the way that they were probably going to enter the Canada Pavilion was going in, again, hitting the first footpath they encounter, which which takes them to that recreation of the Bouchard Gardens in Victoria, Bridge, Columbia. Okay, it's and that part's there. Okay, so if that's the way guests were going to come into the Canada Pavilion, wouldn't it then make sense that the uh, the way the originally the managers were thinking was they'd put the entrance to O Canada on that side? Sure. If you follow along with the thinking. For Epcot, back in the period, think about it, you know, with the original version of Journey into Imagination, you you did the ride, 
and then you were artificially funneled into the image work. So you got a, a ride and then a hand on adventure experience kind of a thing. So yep. maybe that was the idea out of coming out of Canada to the effect of you came out of the mind and you then made your way through the back tree and then, then you came down the hill to the trading post and all that. When you, you take this factoid into it, it, it consideration, the fact that O Canada has never really had the attendance that Disney wanted because the entrance is so far hidden away, you know, in the back of the pavilion. Every so often you'll see them monkeying with the signage to, you know, to kind of drive people back to the entrance of O Canada. In fact, did they do anything out on the promenade for the launch of Canada uh, far and wide or? I don't, I don't think so, no. Yeah. This is an official Disney pictorial souvenir. So all of this copy had to go by somebody. And, yeah. you know, whoever was writing this got handed the official breakdown for the attraction, you know, for you know, sometime in late 1980, early 1981. Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually looking at the, the, the page that you're, you're talking about. And the reason why I think it's two different things, I, I agree with you, is one, the, the first paragraph is sort of like, you know, Northwest Indian Village to Quebec City, you, mm -hmm. you know, Canada Pavilion, yada, yada. But the second paragraph deals with the Circle Vision 360 film. And then the way that it ends, it looks like that's the conclusion of the film. And then to your point, the third paragraph mm -hmm. begins with the climax of your whirlwind 360, Circle Vision 360 tour. Your adventure becomes a walking journey through Canada's exciting backcountry. And so it seems like the film ends and then you do this other thing. Yeah. The interesting thing in looking at it is mm -hmm. the concept art for it, for Canada in this in this booklet mm. looks looks exactly like what we got. Yeah. By the way, the, you can find this booklet if you'd like to look at it yourself folks over at the Disney Docs website and and speaking of which, we also got some email last week from Randy J from Bessemer, Alabama. And I, he int was was talking about the feature piece we did on the last show about uh, Winds of Change, Meet the World, the carousel show that was supposed to be put in the Japan Pavilion at Epcot. Right. And Randy writes to say that when I worked at Epcot in the 1980s, I always heard that it was some kind of design flaw in the building that would have been very expensive to correct. And therefore, that's why the attraction went to Tokyo rather than Epcot. Oh, interesting. And I, I have to tell you, Randy, uh, no disrespect, never heard of the design flaw story before. Uh, but I could definitely see how Walt Disney World officials would put that rumor out there as kind of a face-saving gesture rather than you know, making it the Imagineers' fault that the Epcot version of Meet the World never opened rather than laying the blame at those Mitsukashi executives who just couldn't handle the, the World War II stuff. But but know this, as late as September of 1982, one month out from the official opening of Epcot, the Meet the World show was still a go at the Japanese Pavilion. And the reason really? I, I know this, and in fact, you can go to Disney Docs and look at this book yourself, folks. It's a 32-page booklet called Epcot Center, A Profile. And in this book, Dick Nunes, the then president of Outdoor Recreation Division of Walt Disney Productions, explains that the reason he had this book produced and then sent to every member of Walt Disney World's management team was that this book is written and produced especially for you with the expressed in intent of informing you so that you can inform others. Meaning that as Walt Disney World cast members would go to their bosses with questions about Epcot, these management team members could then reach for the 32-page book and then look up the answers. And in the appendix section of this thing, they actually discuss the Meet the World show, which was supposed to open 
part as part of phase two of Epcot Center construction. And this Epcot Center, the profile book, they get granular about the ride. That they talk about its hourly capacity, which was going to be 2,020 people, the actual length of the presentation, which was 19 minutes and 25 seconds. They talk about, you know, because kind of how long it would take people to get up out of the seats and leave the theater and get the next audience seated. They talk about the, the actual cycle of the shows every 24 minutes. They even get down to the point of how many seats were going to be in each section of, of the theater, and that's 202. I bring this up, Len, because I know you're going back to the Buddy Baker archives at some time in the I was just going to say, it's in box 22, all of this information (laughs) of the Buddy Baker archives. And you're right. It says both World Showcase Japan and Tokyo. But if you go to the listing for for box 22, it says it has the script, the actual script for the attraction. And the reason I, I I want you to go and read this script is because somewhere in there, you know, in fact, the, the, what kills me is you can go online right now and watch Meet the World. You know, that that's, somebody's right. been nice enough to put it in, I want to say, four separate videos up on YouTube. Uh, the problem is it's in, it's, it's in Japanese. And you can clearly oh. see the section that references World War II. And then they say, and now we get to Martin Japan. But I, I would love for you to get the actual wording of, because evidently this is the, the script that Buddy worked off of when he was writing the score and, and taking the song that the Sherman Brothers wrote for the attraction. Did you notice the dates on the various um, components in Box 22? Oh, well, yeah, yeah. November 2nd, 1981 is uh, the date on the scripts. Okay. Buddy Baker has content dated August 3rd, 1981, mm-hmm. April 6th, 1981, September 14th, 1981, November 23rd, 1981, mm. but also August 6th, 1982. Oh. <laughs> so it looks like it spans all of that. Okay. I'll make a, I'll make a special trip over there. Okay. I could, cause, cause I gotta know, I gotta know, you know, especially the language. Because again, that this would this was supposedly. I mean, no disrespect to to Randy J with his, his story, and I'm I'm sure that was put out there. But it, ultimately, this really was more about World War II and the veterans of Florida. But I, I, again, mm. I'd, I'd love for you to find out whether the wording did in fact change through those multiple drafts. You know, it, it, all right, I'll definitely look. Cool, and uh, and I can get the entire box and uh, and look at that. Wow, that's interesting because I had seen the box, and I think you and I talked about this when I was first going to go over to the Buddy Baker archives mm-hmm. and I decided not to grab what was in the box because it was a Tokyo Disneyland thing and I, I completely missed it, the fact that it said World Showcase Japan in there. So that you know what that Jim means yet though Jim that there's probably music that we didn't get to. Okay. All right. Well all right. Well there must be, right? There must be because uh because there's World Showcase music that all right. So I'll definitely do that. Well, we'll uh for our listeners uh who have uh who are on Bandcamp, remember we found a bunch of music in the Buddy Baker archives we paid producers, singers, and musicians to record it, and then Disney wouldn't give us a license to release it. But I'm saying I have that music in my own private collection. So this will be something, Jim, that you and I share together. There we go. And, and there we go. <laughs> Someday when we die, right? When there, when there are no legal consequences for us. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim is going to tell us about the history of Epcot's Communicore now that it's being torn down. We'll be right back. All right, Jim. Like I said, I was uh, I was walking around uh, Epcot all this week, and 
a couple of things came to mind. One, have you seen the official map of Epcot now that Disney's put out with the giant green grass area where the center of future world used to be? Have you seen that? <laughs> that may be the most judicious use of go away green I've ever seen, Len. <laughs> hey, wasn't there a thing here before? Yeah. No, it's always been grass. Yeah. <laughs> And they're demolishing the building, but they're demolishing the building mostly at night mm-hmm. so that it doesn't disturb guests. And they're doing it relatively slowly, I think. But and at this point, you can see the the exposed steel girders that were in Inventions West and before that, of course, part of uh, Communicore. And that brought us to this topic, right, Jim, about how do these things even get built in the first place? The, the weird thing with Inventions Communicore is you can go back – as far as 1972. In fact, this morning when I was digging around, I found something in the annual report that talked about the development of Walt Disney's concept for an experimental co- prototype community of tomorrow, a project that will require the complete cooperation of American industry in order to achieve its goal of introducing, testing, and demonstrating new systems and technologies. So this description of the Epcot project, I, you know, again, a community that would never be completed, but would always be introducing and testing and demonstrating new materials, supposedly mm-hmm. came from Walt himself. Dick Nunes, he did an interview in September of 1982, just ahead of the opening of Epcot. And he talked about how so many people had looked at the domed city in the skyscraper uh, art that Walt had put out there. That hung around our necks like a a millstone for years because that's what people thought Epcot was. And you you said, you have to understand that Walt just put that art out there to get people interested in the project. That over time, he actually began to kind of step away from the Epcot as a city with permanent residence idea and then began to view the project as a showcase to the world for the ingenuity and imagination of American free enterprise. Now, I want to emphasize these two phrases because they have a lot to do with Epcot. It's like, again, we have a showcase to the world for the ingenuity and the imagination of American free enterprise, and which, and this is the really crucial part, can only be produced with the complete cooperation of American industry. Oh, okay. So we jump ahead to 1975. Again, the annual report. Here's where the Imagineers are walking out their concept for the Epcot Future World Theme Center. Yep, Len, that's the full name. Epcot. Just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, put that on a t-shirt, kids. There we go. But it features a communications corridor or Communicore for short. This area is where visitors will be exposed to a series of entertaining and informative ex- exhibits and communications techniques. And it's it's only in the 1976 annual report that Disney reveals the fine print that these shows and exhibits will be offered for sponsorship by participating companies. And th- okay. that a strong unifying theme will then emphasize the American free enterprise system. <laughs> We're going to emphasize the free uh, the American free enterprise system by taking money from corporations who want to advertise to our guests. <laughs> That's it exactly. And we, God bless America. All right, fair enough. And by the seventy seven annual report, Disney finally goes on record about who they're talking with. So major American corporations such as American Telephone and Telegraph, Arco, Borden, Coca Cola, Exxon, General Electric, General Motors, IBM, RCA, Sperry Rand. Standard Oil of India, Westinghouse, and others. 
Okay. Supposedly, according to this annual report, the initial response from these corporations has been most enthusiastic, and we have entered in negotiations which we feel will result in their participation as sponsors of pavilions and exhibits at Future World. Okay. And and keep in mind here that Disney needed the uh, participation of sponsors. Oh, because absolutely. they didn't have the didn't have the money at the time, right? And remember, I think on the last show we talked about. Out of the $1.2 billion that Epcot cost to make, over $300 million of that money came from corporate sponsors. Yeah, that's a lot. But not everybody was willing to pony up for a full-size pavilion, which again explains that language, sponsors of pavilion and exhibits at Future World. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons that, you know, not just the expense of the pavilion land, that there was also the contract you had to sign that said you would agree to sponsor your pavilion at Epcot for 10 years. And then if you opted to renew the deal, you had to then spend the money to renovate and update the pavilion. So it stayed truly futuristic. Right. So if you want to renew the 10-year contract, you're looking at 20 years and one full refurbishment in addition to whatever the yearly cost. That's a lot. You're basically buying a house at this point. Yeah. Hugely, hugely, hugely expensive. For a lot of corporations, that 10-year commitment was just more than they could stomach. But Disney then had a step-down position. It was like, well, if if you're not up for sponsoring a full-size pavilion, in a future world, how would you feel about sponsoring an exhibit for Communicore? Conversely, if they had a company that was on the hook, potentially ready to close on a future world pavilion, but you know needed a little extra incentive, what Disney would do is say, "And this it, lovely space over here, yeah, you know, we'll throw this in for free. You right. can be part of Communicore as well." So, this is how, for example, Exxon, which had already agreed to sponsor Universe of Energy wound up uh, sponsoring the Exxon's Energy Exchange exhibit at Communicore East. Uh, you, you may remember that was one with the the oversized model of the oil drilling platform. Right. Yeah. I actually had to go look this one up in the show notes just to make sure I remembered what it was. Yeah. yeah. It's, not the, it's not the thing that I remember from from Communicore. It's this next thing that you're going to talk about that I remember. Well, yeah. The, you know, the Bell System, American uh, Telephone or Telegraph, they sponsor Spaceship Earth, but they also sponsored Futurecom in Communicore uh, West. And the name of this kinetic sculpture was the Age of Information, which we obviously, in fact, live in right now. Mm-hmm. But it was this elaborate wooden, almost a small world-like clockwork. Yeah. It was like a Ferris wheel mm-hmm. sort of. It was all very complicated. It was. It was. It, but at the, the same time, it seemed to all be made of plastic that was then made to look like wood. Yeah. Very, very 1980s. Yeah. It's, it's hard to it's hard to even describe it other than like a, a pastiche of. It looks like it's. It looks like the back part of it is a printed circuit board, mm-hmm. but rendered in wood and twenty feet wide and ten feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> and but, but at the same time, what a, 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 a husband and wife figure to the front whose coats would open up and reveal what children inside or I it's just it, very strange. Speaking of very strange, we were talking about short-lived shows at the Disney theme parks, and among the shortest lived was the Astuter Computer Review. You're uh, you're talking about the uh, the computer song, aren't you? Yes, yes. Another one written by the Sherman Brothers. Talking about your computer's got a great big memory like an elephant. It just uh. That's right. The, it's the British accent in this that drives me crazy. That's early the pearly. And for those of you musical theater fans out there, what's interesting about the gentleman they got 
to perform this and then to further make this even bizarre. They remember in the show, he appears as a Pepper's ghost effect and dances on top of the computer. Yeah. Okay. But the gentleman who performed early, the pearly, his name is Ken Jennings and no, he's not the jeopardy. uh, Not the jeopardy guy. the, the, The champion. This is the guy who originated the role of Tobias in the, the original Broadway production of Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barbo Fleet Street. By February of 84, a studio computer show got its plug pulled and was replaced by Backstage Magic. To sort of circle back to the Disney docs thing we were talking about earlier, they've just put up a report over there, a 175-page report from February of 81, which is this fascinating look at Epcot 20 months out from when the park opened. The report starts off with the brutal news that as of February of 81, the overall Epcot project is six weeks behind schedule, whereas Communicore is three months behind schedule. Wow. And they have to make this up. They especially have to make this up because what's happening is that because the uh, World of Motion and Universe of Energy shared back of house with uh, Communicore East, and it was, right, was one okay. of these things where it's like, you know, I, you know, I'm sorry, guys, you know, until we lock down which exhibits are going in, we can't necessarily lock down your power sources and everything you need going over to World of Motion and Universe of Energy. So it, it got kind of desperate. And AT&T has agree, agreed to put up $4 million for the construction of FutureCom. Uh, Kim Dakota West and Exxon has agreed to put up $5.5 million for the construction of its energy exchange exhibit over Communicore East. Problem is, that's only $9.5 million. And according to this document, Communicore is going to cost $38.3 million. Yeah, okay. So we're, we're only $29 million short, boys. And to put this in perspective, the entire American Adventure Pavilion only cost $35.4 million to make. So the fact that they're, at this point, they're 20 months out and they, they're $29 million short. In the hole. Yeah. Yeah, they're like $29 million and they've got, yeah, nine. So they're what? They're like 75% in the hole on budget. Oh, it's nuts. Yeah. What this moment kind of reminds me of is remember when when Walt decided in January of 1955, like, okay, uh, Tomorrowland, I know I said it was phase two. We're going to have this for opening day of, of Disneyland. And, <laughs> You've got seven months. Yeah. And, and so he's signing sponsorship deals with very unfuturistic companies like the American Dairy Association and, and the way they try to explain shoehorning the dairy bar attraction into Tomorrowland was that today's food builds tomorrow's man. And then they, they cut a deal with Dutch Boy Paints who, you know, their, their exhibit was called Our Future in Colors. Just sort of like coming in and, and look at a bunch of paint swabs. This goes back to our original theme in the first half of the show. When there's money involved, Disney doesn't really care that much about story. Story's flexible, is what we're saying. Speaking of money, though, because they were so late in the game making, you know, getting these exhibits locked in place, it actually impacted the Centorium, you know, the original big store for, for World Showcase. And was that Mouse Gear now? It was yeah, Centurion? well, it, 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 <laughs> and, and we've got our brand it new was. version of the temporary Mouse Gear sort of on Comedico West. But there were so many problems that resulted because of Communicore was was so slapped together toward the end. It wasn't until January of 1994 where Communicore finally closed. And then, what, six months later, we got interventions that yeah. a lot of these issues were finally addressed, were finally fixed. But even then, 
they only had, you know, six months to do it before, you know, they had to get that thing up out of the ground. So, But they finally got their rotating series of exhibitors, though, and uh, companies. Yeah. Now, do we have any decent info yet about when this sort of heart transplant in the middle of a future world, or, or excuse me, uh, world nature, world celebration, or world discovery, when this stuff is supposedly going to make it up out of the ground? No, I'll, I'll ask. I uh, haven't heard anything on it. Okay. There's a, a great recap of, uh, of Communicore, Jim. Do you remember mm-hmm. the game that AT&T sponsored in Communicore called Network Control, where you could actually route phone traffic? <laughs> On a giant map. Oh God! From, yes, yes. It, and again, this is one of those things where it's like, it, you know, you would today that's a job that you would get paid for. But you know, back then it was like, oh, it's a game. Mm-hmm. I thought that was the most amazing thing ever. I loved. I remember arguing with my parents, not arguing, but like begging my parents to let me stay in Communicore mm-hmm. so I could play with the computers. Do you remember the terminal that let you do um, finger painting on a screen? Don't get me wrong. You literally could encounter the future at Future World. Oh, yeah. You know. I mean, they had, they had demonstrations of email, voicemail. I mean, you, <laughs> computer applications for like specific industries. They had a ton of stuff. Do you remember, though? I mean, the thing that, the thing that I remember to this day, and, and honest to God, I looked at it and fell in love. Do you remember the Epcot Computer Central uh, display? Yeah. It was nothing but a giant room full of computers. And, Jim, I remember... Like as I'm talking about this now, I remember exactly when I when I was standing when those when those windows opened and you could see it. And I was like, I, I remember as a child, again, this was 1980, so I was like 14, mm-hmm. 15. I was like, this is I want to work in here someday. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Like <laughs> I was amazed by all of it. But again, you and I are both old enough to know that when you finally made it into that, you know, that computer room, first of all, you were, what, 18 inches, two feet off of the ground because they had to, you know, what it took to cool that. Oh, elevated floors. Yeah. Oh, God. I, uh, I, sp- I spent 20 years in, uh, in, in computer rooms. And it was funny because you, you mentioned that the uh, computer rooms that I was in, mm-hmm. their uh, heating and cooling was basically the inverse of whatever was happening outside. So if it was hot outside. Oh, yeah. It was freezing in the computer room because they had to bring the temperature down. And if it was warm out, if it was cold outside, they had to bring it up. So you would always dress for like thermal inversion. <laughs> like whatever, whatever it was outside, oh. you're wearing the opposite of it. I dearly remember that for, for, for years of digital equipment. And though yeah. I, we should tell one final quick story in regard to Communicore, and that is the Electronic Forum. Oh, I was going to ask you about this. The, uh, the person of the century. Oh, yes. Yes. Is that where you're going? Yes, 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 yes. So, so they you, the for what eighteen years or whatever they ran a a question asking who do you think should be the person of the century, right? Yeah, they had their list, their list of suggestions: Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and you know, very subtle Michael Jackson, you know, right? It, yeah. Albert Einstein. Very subtly put Walt Disney in there. Sure, yeah, you know what they hadn't anticipated was you could input yourself a name, and there was. I'm blanking the name of the cast member uh, who work, worked at Epcot, who convinced his, his fellow cast members that every day they had to go in and vote for him. And what eventually happened over months is he began to make the list. <laughs> because, again, it's a, a computer-driven list. And, and you know, so you sort of like, who the hell's Ernie Rabinowitz? Yeah, from housekeeping. <laughs> you know, just him or Einstein. Wow, which way should I go? 
And eh, in the end, the toss-up. <laughs> that was one of the reasons that Disney quietly shut it down. They, they realized that- Because they, they never announced who won. No, they never announced who won. So, you know, because again, do, do it, was, you know? it was Manny Rabinowitz. So, you know, just sort of- Oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and where's his prize? You know, come on. So- he was denied his rightful glory. That's what I'm saying, Jim. I agree. All right. Great uh, great job on the community course story, Jim. That was really good. All right, folks. That's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. We're currently on our Disney music series. On next week's show, we're going to talk about the shortest running Disney World attractions of all time. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams who's participating in next week's Running of the Bulls at the Fire and Ice Winterfest in beautiful Lava Hot Springs, Idaho, just two hours north of Salt Lake City. Except it's not bulls in Spain in summer. It's wearing a bathing suit, jumping in a pool full of water, and running down the street in the middle of winter in Idaho. Uh While Aaron's doing... (laughs) Right, good luck. Good luck, Aaron. (laughs) While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show. You see, my friends, the computer makes life easier. Saves me time and headaches, too. He sorts things out, analyzes in a shake. My enormous problem, to him's a piece of cake. He's got a great big memory like an elephant. Utilizes knowledge without end. That's why I'm a router for me computer. Everybody needs a friend. When my work piles up and I'm seeing red, cause I need five arms and an extra head, I find the computer becomes me troubleshooter. He keeps miles and miles of facts on file. My wish is his command. Nothing is astuter than a computer when I need a helping hand. Let me explain. They keep on top of accommodations, record and update reservations, coordinate telephone operations, and help plan energy conservation. They're really a great financial device. Payroll service is kept precise. They project attendance, then give advice on personnel, food, and merchandise. They're constantly focusing all their attention on matters of safety and fire prevention. They've given efficiency new dimension with numerous examples too many to mention. <sighs> And that's why I'm a router for me computer. Everybody needs a friend. You see, my friends, the computer does the drudgery. Leaves me free for better things. I push some buttons and in and off a mo. What was a sticky wicket becomes an easy go. He's got a great big memory like an elephant. How he works is hard to comprehend Complicated computations take him just a tick He coordinates and tabulates and does it double quick And that's why I'm a router for me computer Everybody needs a friend No need to stand, no need to stand Thank you! Thank you, one and all! Thank you, thank you!